All right, before we get really far into all this stuff, um, let's go ahead and uh, give a word of prayer just to ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we thank you for um, the opportunity we have to come and to uh, look at the history of your church. Um, we thank you for great men like Martin Luther um, and like uh, the other guys that we're going to talk about this morning who, who did great things uh, to strive for, cha- strive for change. In the, uh, in the Catholic Church. Um, Father, we just ask you to bless this morning, bless our time together. I pray that we'll um, learn more about, about you um, and about your people and about our place in, uh, in history uh, from this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so um, last week, just kind of to recap, uh, Mike talked about basically this dark age of history in the church. Uh, a lot of times it's referred to as the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, whatever. This period of time where it was bad, basically. The, the church issued a number of crusades. The corruption within the church became greater and greater and greater. Um, there was just, well, it was just going bad. It was going way downhill, and, um, and the whole thing uh, was not what it was intended to be uh, from the beginning. And I'm sure that if men like Augustine had, or Augustine, as you guys say it, I learned it, Augustine, so I'll probably say it wrong every time. <laughs> um, if, if those guys had seen what the church had become, they surely would have um, been greatly saddened um, and quite upset with it. So, um, But um, as Mike pointed out, there are within this dark age points of light. And, um, and certainly Martin Luther and this, this period um, in the 50, early 1500s, late 1400s, um, is a period of great light. Um, of a renewing of the gospel in the church. So, to start off, um, you see in your outline, um, introduction, the need for reform. So, from last week, if you were here, you saw the need for reform. Um, not only was corruption within, you know, there's this buying of offices that was happening in churches. Basically, you support me, you pay this much money to the church, and I'll give you this bishopship. You give me this, I'll give you this, whatever. So they're basically selling these offices to people who give money to the church. Um, not only that, but the theology had become, well, not very good. And Lanny talked about that the week before, where we saw um, these new kind of heresies creeping into the church and where you know you see the Eastern Church totally embracing uh, the idea that, that, that Jesus wasn't even fully man, that he wasn't fully God and man, a rejection, a full-out rejection of the Trinity. And so... Understand that not only was this corruption things like what we're going to talk about this morning, but the theology was broken. So it's it's not just little things like selling indulgences, although that's that's not a little thing. Although it's not just that kind of stuff. It's not just corruption. It's it's broken, muddled, easy, peasy theology. It's it's getting away from the truth of the gospel. And so um, you see different popes trying to take control, emperors trying to take control, and implement reforms to try to change things. Um, and most of the time, <laughs> though they tried, they either got discouraged that they couldn't do anything, or they just fell into the corruption themselves um, because they saw, hey, wait a second, these guys who I'm mad at, who are messing things up, are making a lot of money. That sounds all right. Um, so you see, for instance... Um, about the peak of the 1400s um, is when things really hit the, the peak of badness. 
Um, there was the selling of church offices, uh, taxing of church members. So basically the church instituted its own tax. Um, essentially superstition and idolatry. We talked about the relics that people would pray to. Um, a church would be in possession of a real splinter from the cross. And you would go and you would view that splinter from the cross and you would be healed. Or um, if you know a traveling a uh, bishop would, would carry around this relic with him and bring it to places. To You could come and you could pray to that relic and ask for, for forgiveness and ask for cleansing and all these great things. And Well, it wasn't good. That wasn't what the Bible said, and it wasn't right. So, um, the big thing that kind of sparked what became the Protestant Reformation, which we're going to get to, um, was indulgences. And... Um, the selling of indulgences was huge, especially in this time, 1400s, late 1400s. So kind of put in your mind, late 1400s, church is huge. The church is as big as the state, and they're instituting taxes. Uh, they're issuing forgiveness here and there for a certain amount of money. And that's what an indulgence is. Um, it really kind of originated with a guy named Origen um, in I think the third century. So it was, you know, a thousand years before this that this guy, Origen, kind of came up with this idea. He asked himself the question, how is it that we can be sinful here um, and then be perfect in heaven? And so he came up with this idea of purgatory. And um, that became a huge doctrine of the Catholic Church, this idea of an in-between place. So there's heaven, there's hell, and there's purgatory. Purgatory is where you go when you die because you're still not perfect. And so you go there to be lashed, to be uh, put through all kinds of interesting little... You can read Dante's Purg Purgatorio if you want to see any of that, because there's one guy who keeps pushing a rock up a hill, and every time he gets to the top, it rolls back down, and he has to push it back up. And he does this for, you know, a thousand years. And that's, his, that's the way he works off his sin in Purgatory so that he can go to heaven. So this is a, obviously a broken doctrine and, and not, not sound from the Bible at all. Um, but Origen came up with it, and, and up to this point, in the 1400s, it was just a commonly accepted doctrine. They didn't think anything of it. Uh, it's just like, yeah, okay, when I die, I go to purgatory. So an indulgence was basically your way of buying some time off of purgatory. So a uh, traveling salesman comes out and says, hey, listen here, I've got uh, indulgences uh, for only two pence. You can redeem your loved one from purgatory. It really was like that. I mean... Um, A guy, there was a guy named Tetzel, uh, and he was probably one of the first big traveling salesmen who stood up on a platform and peddled his wares. And he was peddling the church's wares, which were indulgences. He would actually get up there, um, and we still have one of his little jingles recorded, and he says, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So this, this is the idea that is going to spark what becomes Reformation. These reformers saw that indulgences were not the way to get forgiveness. That indulgences were not the way to pay for your sins. We'll get to that later. Okay, so the use of indulgences, the kind of good thing is, it brought a whole lot of money into the church. Uh, even though indulgences weren't very expensive, I mean, it's nominal fee that you're paying to get this indulgence, it's still, you know, suddenly everybody says, wait, you mean I don't have to go and beat myself and, and repent over and over and over and do good works and do all this other stuff to gain, gain, gain forgiveness. It's not about my works. It's just about my money. Okay. And so 
they were buying their, you know, grandmother out of hell. They were buying their whatever. Everybody was just giving money to the church so that they could get forgiveness, they could get time out of purgatory. Um, and so all that money in the church meant that lots of really nice, pretty churches got built. For instance, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was built for money from indulgences, which is a sad thing because it's a really, really cool place. But to think that that money was basically all scammed from innocent, well, innocent, uh, mindless <laughs> Catholics um, in the 14th century. Uh, it's just kind of sad to know. But also, not only that, uh, you, this is the time period when uh, Michelangelo, uh, Erasmus, these, uh, we have sculptors, we have painters, we have great works of art commissioned. You see the Sistine Chapel ceiling paid for with indulgences. Um, you see all these great works of art that we think of, you study about in your art history classes. Basically, if it was done in the 1400s, it was probably paid for with indulgence money. Um, so we see how great this influx of money was and how much it was doing for the church. It was growing things. It was making things uh, better uh, as far as they could see. But, you know, these popes, these priests, these bishops are getting rich. Churches are getting built, but the people still don't have forgiveness of their sins. So by this point, you can see, um, and a lot of people could see, that the church needed reform. The problem was um, how to do it. Um, so first off, we're going to talk about four kind of major figures that play into the early part of the Reformation. Um, there's a statue in, in Worms, which looks like Worms, but Germans pronounce their W's weird. So uh, in Worms, Germany, there's a, a statue um, that has Luther uh, standing trial. And it's, it's where he stood trial. It's actually where he was when he, when he was under trial. We'll get to that later, too. Um, and then there are four figures at the base of that statue. Those four guys are John Wycliffe, John Huss, Peter Waldo, and Girmalno Saravanara. I can't say that one. I, the Saravanara, I can't do it. It just won't happen. I'm going to call him Geronimo. That's not his name, though, so don't, don't write that down. Okay, uh, so Peter Waldo, first off. Uh, Peter Waldo was um, living in the 12th century in southern France. So keep in mind, at this time, the Roman Catholic Church basically takes up what was the Holy Roman Empire, which is Europe, essentially. It stretched from Spain all the way over to eastern Germany, Czechoslovakia, um, basically to Russia. So this whole place is what is called the church at this time. So all these people were had one religion. They fended off the Muslims from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Mostly successfully. So at this time, this area is mostly Catholic. Um, and just imagine that. All of Europe, one religion. All under the leadership of one pope, basically. Um, which made the Pope the most powerful person in the world. Because you may have a king of Germany, you may have the, the king of England, whatever, but the Pope was over it all. Okay, now, so we're talking about southern France here. You can picture in your mind where France is. It's just west of Germany. Um, a merchant named... East of Germany. A uh, merchant named Peter Waldo, he gave up everything he had and began preaching publicly about the immorality and bad doctrines of the church. His two main doctrines were transubstantiation and purgatory. Um, 
later on, a group called the Waldensians, who claimed to be his followers, kind of followed him, um, really clarified what his doctrines were, because from his writings and his speeches and sermons that we have, it's kind of hard to really nail him down as far as where he stood on everything. But um, I guess they kind of just filled in the gaps that we had. So we kind of understand better about what the main idea was. So um, his biggest things were, um, like I said, transubstantiation and purgatory, but also uh, scripture alone is the source of authority in the church. And that's a big one. Because like I just said, the Pope was the source of authority in the church. He was the sole authority. And really, if it came down to it, the people couldn't really read Scripture very much. And so if something in Scripture disagreed with what the Pope said, the Pope won. Because the people couldn't just go and say, well, wait a second. That's not what it says. They just had to trust him. And most of the time, <laughs> he wasn't too trustworthy every time. Okay, so also, along with that, he believed that the Bible should be in a common language. Waldo says, hey, the Bible is the source of authority, but how will we know whether that authority contradicts what the Pope says if we can't even read the Bible? And so he actually took to it and translated the Vulgate into French, um, which was big, because at this time the Bible basically was in Latin. Um, the Biblia Vulgata was what was used majorly, um, and if you couldn't read Latin... You couldn't read the Bible. I was sorry. Too luck. Too bad for you. Um, so the Waldensian movement spread kind of across southern France um, and into northwest Italy, um, even though there was a whole lot of persecution going on. Um, and then later on, the Waldensians are kind of joined the Reformed Church um, and the Protestantism and all that goodness with uh, William Farrell. We'll get to that later. Um, but their major contribution to the Reformation was they provided the basis and the funding for Calvin's French translation and publication of the Bible. So ultimately, when you get to Calvin, you're going to hear about the Waldensians again because they had such great faith and had already done such, so much work in translating the Bible into French that when Calvin came along and said, I want to make a really great translation um, in the common tongue, they were you know, there to help and fund and do all those that, that things with him. Um, in the 1650s, the Waldensians, massive persecution, nearly wiped out. They got, kind of got scattered throughout Europe and across the world, but um, there wasn't really any big, well, that's why you don't have Waldensian churches now, because as a group, they kind of were dispersed and just became parts of other groups later in the Reformation. Um, all right, so second, we have John Wycliffe, and this is, he's a little bit later. This is uh, the 1300s, um, mainly. This is the late 14th century, so yeah, 1300s. He was an Oxford professor um, and actually a government official in England and he was really frustrated with all the division in the papacy because at his time, um, there were basically two popes that were saying, or two rivals that were saying, I'm the pope, no, I'm the pope, no, I'm the pope, no, I'm the pope. And uh, he was really frustrated by that and said, wait a second, uh, I don't even want a pope at all. So he says, the Bible is a source of authority and our leadership should follow the example of Christ and be humble and not greedy. Well, that guy I'm in a little trouble, probably. Um, he also held that Christ's true church is not the Pope and his hierarchy, but the body of Christ, which is the church elected to God for salvation, elected by God for salvation. Um, and that sounds normal to us. The ch what's the church? Christ's chosen, God's chosen people elected through Christ. Well, that was big then, because that's not who the church was. The church was... The Pope, his bishops, his cardinals, 
Um, and the people who went there just were just people. They weren't the church. And then second, since all true believers comprise the church, it followed that they should be able to read the Bible in their own language. Notice the theme here? One of the biggest things was that these people believed, these reformers, saw the need for people to read the Bible in their own language. Um, so, uh, Wycliffe fought for that, but um, not until after he died, so he didn't actually get to see it. But after he died, um, Wycliffe's followers translated the Bible into English, which is the first ever English translation of the Bible, which is really hard to read if you go try to read it. Um, also, he declared transubstantiation um, in communion to be false, which is another big thing. The Catholic Church believed that transubstantiation is the process where when you're given communion, the bread actually becomes the literal body of Christ, and the wine actually becomes the literal blood of Christ. And so you are partaking of Christ's body and blood, literally. Um, and he said, no, the Bible doesn't say that. That's wrong. Um, he recognized that there was a, um, that Christ was physically present in those elements, and that there was some symbolism that was very powerful. But he said it was not literally those things. Um, Wycliffe wasn't actually formally excommunicated, but for all practical purposes, um, he was cast out from the church. Um, they just said, ugh. My, my way I kind of see this is the church people thought he was so silly that he wouldn't believe in transubstantiation. They kind of just wrote him off, just like, ah, whatever, go your way. You're not going to hurt us. Um, little did they know. Um, his followers were called the Lollards. I don't have any idea why. I was, I was trying to figure out where that came from. No, no clue. Um, and they spread his teachings around and copies of the English Bible. Um, lots of them were put to death for their beliefs. Um, so although Wycliffe was, just kind of went away and wrote and had, had a nice little life until he died of old age, um, his followers were persecuted pretty heavily. Um, and then, uh, in 1415, the Council of Constance declared Wycliffe to be a heretic. And then, several years later, in 1428, they dug up his bones and burned them and then cast his ashes into the river, Swift. Um, <laughs> so... They were like, well, he was a heretic, but we didn't get him, so let's dig him up and we'll burn him now. That'll work. So they burned his bones, cast his ashes into the river, and then um, a historian said, I love this quote, uh, they burnt his bones to ashes and cast them into Swift, a neighboring brook running hard by. Thus, this brook hath conveyed his ashes into Avon, Avon into Severn, Severn into the narrow sea, they into the main ocean, and thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. And that was uh, Thomas Fuller who wrote the history of Britain in 1655. So Wycliffe is also called the morning star of the Reformation because it was his teachings and his followers that really shine the light on, well, they were a bright light in this dark age. Third, John Huss. Um, John Huss was a follower of Wycliffe. Uh, he heard uh, Wycliffe preach and... Um, his, heard his, his lectures, and he was a bohemian priest um, and the rector of the University of Prague. So this is Prague, Bohemia. Um, his original concern was mainly moral. So he wasn't so much 
concerned with, with the doctrines and the theology and stuff. At first, it was just, I can't believe these people who claim to be the bishops and the cardinals of this church are so degenerate and, and awful. So, influenced by that idea and the writings of Wycliffe, he kind of decided that only God's elect people comprise the true universal church. So, these yucky leader guys in the church aren't the church. The followers of Christ are the church. Um, and then the Bible was the supreme authority. You see that again, and therefore it should be in the common language. He also uh, wrote against all the superstitions of relics and images and all that stuff and claimed that any healings by them were all false miracles. Um, about this time, Pope John the Twenty-Third, uh, who kind of hoped to expand his power a little bit, launched a crusade into Naples, Italy. Yeah, weird enough. He launched a crusade to Naples, <laughs> which for those of you who don't know is basically like the area of Pompeii. There's a little inlet in the kind of curve of the boot, and uh, it's just this little seafaring town, little village, <laughs> and so he just launched a crusade against Naples. Um, <laughs> and he, he decided that he would finance it by selling indulgences. Um, and since Huss believed that only God can forgive sins, and he also believed that profiting from God's prerogative was profoundly wrong. And so the Pope said, you're excommunicated, go away. And he kicked him out of the church. Um, and then a sympathetic emperor uh, invited Huss to defend himself before the Council of Constance, the same thing that burned Wycliffe's ashes. Um, but the uh, Pope tricked Huss a little bit and, <laughs> and had him burned at the stake at 1415 when he refused to recant his beliefs. So a reformer, another reformer burned at the stake. But um, it kind of his words are, are famous as he was being burned. He said, um, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. Um, after he died, um, his outraged followers were like, we'll continue your legacy and went on a crusade against the, um, well, the crusade was sent against them and they fought against the... Uh, Catholics. It's hard to use the right language here because they're all Catholics still. So it's like the, the Hussites fought against the Popeites. There, that works. All right, and then finally, number four, Geronimo. He was a Dominican friar. We talked a little bit about the, the different types of monkdom, um, and he was a Dominican one. Um, he started preaching the apocalypse um, in Florence. So in Italy again, um, around 1490. Um, he basically got control of the whole city of Florence and implemented civic moral reform. Um, you're going to see this done again by, in fact, most people say that Calvin kind of stole the idea for the Geneva civic reform from Geronimo. i got to say his name right. Savonarola. I say it Italian, that works fine. Savonarola. There we go. Okay, so he implemented a program of civic moral reform that would be copied later by uh, John Calvin in Geneva. Um, and this is one of the first times we see this kind of classic 1950s style, let's burn all the stuff that is worldly. So they gathered up all the makeup, the dresses and hats and pornography and board games and musical instruments, uh, great works of art, and had a big barn fire in the square and burned it all. 
Um, and this is referred to as the bonfire of the vanities and is um, one of the, you know, the first instances of this kind of, we'll burn everything that's worldly because we need to trust in Christ alone. And so while, while it seems a little extreme to us and we think, you know, okay, no, we don't need to, that's not really necessary. We can have these things and still, maybe not pornography. We can have these, most of these things, work great works of art and that kind of thing, dresses and hats, um, and still believe in Christ alone and have faith in him alone, um, but just enjoy, you know, earthly things too. Still, this was a huge step because it really forced a new morality in Florence. It forced a return to kind of this civic moral compass that had all but faded far, far away um, at this point in time. He, like uh, Huss, was excommunicated, um, tortured into signing a confession, and then burned at the stake at the very place where the bonfire of the vanities happened. Kind of a cruel irony. So keep in mind, Savonarola was, was mainly about moral stuff. He didn't get too much into doctrine or theology. Um, his reformation was all about civic reformation, reforming the morality of the state and not as much the church. But his style and, and the way he went about things was very influential to later stuff. Okay, now on to Martin Luther. Yes. Luther was born in Germany on November 10th, 1483. Um, his father wanted him to go to university to become a lawyer. Um, and he always was very much in the church, though. Um, he, he and his family were, were very faithful to, to go to Mass and to um, do what they could to, to learn and to, to study things. But because of this, he lived his whole life, basically, in, or at least the early years, in mortal fear of divine judgment. He was terrified of the devil. He was terrified of being judged by a perfect almighty God. Um, and when he was 22, and this, we, we're pretty sure this is really what happened. He was uh, going through the countryside and found himself caught in a, in a thunderstorm. Um, and a bolt of lightning hit really close to him. He was thrown to the ground, and in a fit of terror, he cries out, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. And he didn't die of a thunderstorm, and so he followed up on his promise, and he abandoned law school and entered a monastery in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, <laughs> once in the monastery, Luther was the perfect monk. I mean, he was like, okay, I live in mortal fear of all my sin. I'm terrified of judgment, so I'm going to do everything I can to cancel out all my sins and live a perfect little life. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do everything I can to earn God's favor. But he still never escaped that paralyzing fear um, of judgment. And so, oh, here's a good story. Let me throw this in here. Um, he even went to Rome, made a pilgrimage to Rome, and uh, the steps that climb up to Pilate's judgment seat, which is you know where they say that Christ was judged, um, he climbed every step. I think it's like 200 and something steps and kissed everyone on the way up. This is something that you did as a, as a way of showing your, your true pledge of, of faithfulness to the church. And uh, he went and did it because he wanted to make sure everything he could do to get his sins taken care of. But no amount of penance could, could fix it. So his superiors kind of counseled him to, to go and find solace in Christ. Um, <laughs> but but even, even Christ seemed terrible and... Too hard to contemplate. 
I don't want to think about Christ. Christ is perfect. Christ, I can't stand before him. So Luther discovered um, that sin cannot be defeated by becoming a monk. This wasn't a new idea. Uh, for instance, Berenger of Tours had written a warning to monks 500 years earlier. He says, The monk is alone in his cell, but sin loiters about the door with enticing words and seeks admittance. I am your beloved, says she, whom you courted in the world. I was with you when you ate, slept with you on the couch. Without me, you did nothing. How dare you think of forsaking me? I followed you every step. Do you really think you can hide in your cell? I was with you in the world when you ate meat and drank wine. I will be with you in the monastery where you live only on bread and water. So, as a monk with a particularly active conscience, Luther caused a lot of problems in the monastery. Um, he was kind of a troublemaker, and <laughs> finally the church, like a good bureaucracy, decided to do with him um, what they do with all annoying people, promote him. And so he was sent to be a supervising priest and, um, and actually a professor of the Bible at a university. And so he took the job with full vigor, saying, okay, well, here's, an, here's a chance for me to work real hard and win some more forgiveness. Maybe this will be the key. Um, his first project was to teach the Psalms. And so he talked through them very systematically, one, two, three, four, five. When he got to number 22, though, he was dumbstruck by the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther said, well, this is what Jesus said when he was on the cross. But how could that be? How can Christ be forsaken? The perfect, righteous judge, how could he be forsaken by God? That's a cry that only a sinner would utter. So this launched him into vicious study, um, of especially Romans and Galatians, and the writings of Augustine. Um, and then he finally came to the conclusion that it must be that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, to take our sin and be treated as if it were his own. And this realization that God sent Christ to be our substitute shook Luther to the core. He found a sense of God's forgiveness. Not working, not trying to merit salvation, but that this is a free, unmerited grace. It should be stressed that Luther and the other reformers didn't see themselves as innovators. No, they didn't think they're coming up with something new. They saw that they were returning to the roots of theology in the early church. Remember, he's reading Augustine. So he saw it as a return, not as something new and grandly profound. So... He faced the immediate challenge of trying to reconcile his understanding of salvation with the church's practice of selling indulgences. If forgiveness is free, why do I have to pay for it? So, since the Pope Leo X was as corrupt as decadent as many of his predecessors, he wanted to build an opulent new cathedral named after St. Peter. And he commissioned a new round of indulgences to pay for the construction. But... On October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed a series of 95 propositions to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And now this sounds kind of weird, but at the time, the church door was basically like the city bulletin board. And so all important notices were posted on the church door because everybody went to church, everybody saw them, they knew where to go to get the information. Anyway, so it wasn't that strange for him to do this. But 
still, these 95 theses, as they became called, um, would be what really shook um, the whole idea of church. Basically, the 95 theses hit on two points. Um, they're all real short. You can actually read them in a, you know, real quick. It's not hard to read. They're, they're not like, you know, pages long or anything. It's 95 short little statements, basically. Um, and they kind of hit on two main points. First, if the Pope truly has all this power and control over purgatory and forgiveness and all that stuff, why didn't he just release everybody from there? Why would he make anybody stay? If he has the power, why? That doesn't make any sense. He's supposed to be a good guy. Why wouldn't he just let them all out? And second, and more importantly, Luther said, why would we want to escape remorse for our sin? Um, shouldn't we enjoy that contrition? I think about Philippians. Those hard times produces endurance and perseverance and faith. Um, he says that's what makes us trust in Christ is when we feel awful about what we've done. Well, the 95 Theses um, provoked immediate and very dramatic response. Um, all of Germany was swept away in controversy, and um, scholars were spreading his stuff all around. It became, you know, think about, in our world of modern media, it's quick to spread around, but just imagine that Luther posts these 95 Theses on the door, and quickly, the whole town knows about it, and then quickly, Germany knows about it, and especially the great leaders, and the Pope himself um, saw and read these 95 theses um, that Luther had posted on the door. And uh, as a matter of kind of off the handle here, uh, October 31st is when he posted them, so I celebrate Reformation Day instead of Halloween. Um, since the Pope heard about and read these 95 theses, he called a diet, and it's not where you eat certain things. Um, a diet is kind of a gathering of a legislative body or a group of officials, something like that. So keep in mind, diet is not, oh, I'll eat this. Um, in the city of Augsburg, to call Luther up and say, you're a heretic. And Luther refused to recant and said, the Pope and the church councils are fallible. They're not perfect. They can mess up. Well, he didn't kill him yet. <laughs> um, in uh, 1520, he published a series of books and tracts that kind of followed up the 95 Theses and attacked the Pope, um, elaborated on his positions against indulgences and against that kind of thing. Um, and this was called the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And it kind of goes back to this idea that you know, the Jews were, were exiled into Babylon and were held captive. And so he viewed the Pope's reign over the Church kind of as the Babylonian captivity for his time, and that the people of the real church, their actual church, was being held hostage, basically, by the leaders, by the Pope. Um, he affirmed that um, baptism and communion are the only true sacraments that were ordained by Christ. Um, he said, you know, confirmation, confession, marriage, ordination, last rites, that stuff isn't biblical and doesn't actually emit grace or anything like that. It has nothing to do... Those are just vain rituals, basically, is kind of how he did it. Um, so it didn't matter that the church was administering them, but the faith of the recipient was, was the only key thing in any sacrament. So it doesn't matter who's administering it. Um, 
And here comes the most severe challenge the medieval Catholicism had ever faced. Not mm, Islam, um, not battles with European emperors and whatever else. Suddenly, the church had an opponent who was citing scripture and saying, no, 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 you're wrong. This is what the Bible says. The church's authority had been denied by Luther, and that was the biggest challenge that Catholicism had ever seen. Not surprisingly, uh, the Babylonian captivity caught the attention of Pope Leo, and he issued a bull, which is kind of like a written mandate, um, which basically gave Luther 60 days to submit to the Pope or be killed. Um, and on the final day, the 60th day, Luther celebrated the expiration of the deadline by burning it um, and, and a set of writings that supported the papal claims. Okay, so now the Holy Roman Emperor says, wait a second, I'll get involved in this too. So Charles V, um, he becomes one of the greatest monarchs of, of history um, right between Napoleon and Roman emperors and stuff. So um, he summoned Luther to the Diet of Worms. Now on your sheet it looks like Diet of Worms which sounds like something a second grader would force a friend to do. But this is pronounced the Diet of Worms, and Worms is a place, um, and a diet is a gathering of legislative bodies sort of idea. Um, Luther arrives at the diet, and uh, he was presented with a pile of his books. Um, and some say that the stack was as tall as a man. And upon arriving, um, oh, sorry, before Luther could even answer the accusations against him, uh, the emperor said, no, 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 hold on a second. Wait, wait, we can't continue. There's no way one guy could write this many books. Um, and then they, you know, said, no, he really did write them. Then, um, once they started asking Luther, you know, will you recant these books? Luther just says, well, uh, I'm going to need a minute to look over it. And so they're like, okay. So they gave him a day uh, to go over his books and see what was in them. And basically he came back and he had divided them up into three sets. Um, and he said, okay, here's this set. And everyone, including you Catholic popes and bishops and all that stuff, can agree that this stuff is good. It's solid. It's useful. Um, it's sound with all your doctrines. There's no problem here. Um, this stack, my personality kind of flew out. And I may have said some things that were a little too harsh. So, okay, I recant these. And then um, there are these that just talk about how evil the world is today. I mean, I'm not going to recant those because the evil of the world is real. And so the prosecutor says, wait a second, you're talking in circles. Give me a straight answer. And Luther says, since your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will give an answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And with those words, Protestantism was born. Luther's doctrine was condemned, um, he was given 40 days to return home, and after that, anyone could hand him over to the authorities to be burnt. Um, but unbeknownst to Luther, his buddy Frederick the Wise, who was a prince, 
um, had a castle at, at Wartburg, and um, he kind of stole Luther away and hid him um, for a year or so, kind of kept him in hiding so that people couldn't kill him. Um, and even though he was struggling with depression because he felt like, you know, God, I was, I was fixing stuff. Why did you let this happen to me? Um, even though he was struggling with that, he still <laughs> was extraordinarily prolific in his writing. Um, he, oh, you know, translated the Bible into German uh, with a translation that is still used today. Luther's translation of the Vulgate into German um, is still one of one of very popular translations of the Bible, especially you know in Germany. Um, but Luther, while he was writing all these things, was undergoing severe physiological, um, psychological, just issues. He felt like he was under attack. Um, he would kind of say to himself, are you really the only one who knows the truth? I mean, isn't there something wrong if you're the only one standing against all these people, all so many wise men? Um, and then he had this other problem. If he has removed all the church's accepted means of responding to sin... Um, he had nothing to fall back on but Christ. <laughs> he couldn't, he just had to ask for forgiveness. And, you know, growing up in a world where the only way he could be forgiven of sins was by doing these things. Do this, do this, do this. Say this prayer, do this fasting, do these acts. And suddenly he says, well, I, I don't need those anymore, but how do I do this? How do I ask for forgiveness? How do I pray? How do I, you know, Come before a perfect Christ and ask for forgiveness. Um, anyway, I'll skip this part because it's not too terribly important. Uh, back in Wittenberg, Luther's followers um, carried out concrete reforms of the church. They started fixing stuff. And on Christmas Day in 1521, um, a minister who ascribed uh, to Luther's teaching held a mass in the new fashion. Um, he wore plain clothes. Uh, no vestments of, of popery. Um, he didn't mention anything about sacrifice. Um, and he did the whole service in German, not Latin. And for the first time in, the, in their whole lives, the people within the church heard in their own language, this is my body. Um, and then the body and, and the cup, the bread and the cup, were actually handed to the people instead of placed on their tongue by the Pope. So they receive the communion themselves. Um, they were not just portrayed it, kind of given to them. Um, priests began to marry in Wittenberg, um, which Luther actually did himself later on in life. Uh, okay, so from the, for the early 1500s, um, Luther was both the most hated and the most revered man in Europe. Um, he Finally, he died in 1546, but um, he wrote prolifically uh, essays, sermons, hymns. Uh, we, we sing Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of his greatest hymns. Um, he wrote The Bondage of the Will, which was a, kind of a debate with a guy named Erasmus about uh, whether, whether we choose salvation or whether you know, our, our will is in bondage until we are set free by Christ. Um, let's skip down to doctrines real quick. Okay, i got to hit these doctrines like a... Like a machine gun. Here we go. Okay. Three doctrines. Three big doctrines that really hurt the church and made this be reformed. Theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. 
Um, so look at Galatians 2.16, and it says at the end, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. When Luther read that verse, um, it caused him anguish because what Paul is saying is that our very best attempts to be good will not save us. In fact, um, our best attempts to be good are damnable, are worthless. So Luther pointed out that salvation is not a combination of Christ and our good works, but it's all Christ. It has nothing to do with what we do. Salvation isn't a team up, but um, the Bible commands our love to God and our neighbor and then tells us that our very best attempts to love are sinful. And so, being hor- horrendously offensive human beings, um, <laughs> we are inherently, and this is Luther's term, theologians of glory, or people who are concerned with establishing our own righteousness. We don't like being told that we're broken, so we want to try to fix ourselves. Um, and Luther said, no, that's not what we need. We don't want to try to glorify ourselves. So opposed to that theology of glory is the theology of the cross. And that says that salvation comes when absolutely everything you are, you are is recognized as insufficient and sinful and placed on the cross. And that was groundbreaking because that went against everything that the Catholic Church was teaching at the time. They were teaching that your forgiveness was based in what you did. Your forgiveness was placed, your forgiveness was placed in the purchase of an indulgence. So this was huge. Um, and then the question came around, well, how does that gospel get applied to us? How does th- that happen? And this is another, this is the biggest thing that you'll ever hear of Luther. I have to make sure I get to this, so even if Jared tells me to stop, I'm going to keep going because I have to talk about justification by faith alone. Uh, this was what, this was Reformation. This was it. This was the key doctrine. Um, since our best works are sinful, we can't trust in them to save us. So that means that the gospel has to be applied to us. And Luther looked in uh, Romans and he says, the just shall live by faith. And Luther found his answer right there. He says, the means by which God takes our sin and nails it to the cross and takes Christ's righteousness and applies it to us by faith and only by faith. And Luther found this so powerful that when he translated the Bible into German, he actually added a word in the verse. He says, um, the just shall live by faith alone. Which he shouldn't have done that. That was a bad idea to add to the Bible. But it is theologically accurate. Okay, so what does that mean for our practical lives? We're freed from the burden of law. um, So how should we live? And that's where his third key doctrine comes in. Believer's freedom. So if Christ totally and completely accomplished everything necessary for salvation. If our sin is paid for, um, law is totally obeyed through Christ, what do we do? How do we live our lives? And Luther kind of said, as long as you're not sinning, you can do whatever you want. You can get married if you're a priest. You can be an artist. You can be this. You can be that. As long as you're not sinning, you're doing okay. He quoted Augustine as saying, love God and do what you want. So, let's see, how can I end this beautifully? We won't make it to Lutheranism um, today, which is okay, because we're not Lutherans. Who cares? <laughs> Let me give a, here's another quote from Luther. I think this is a good way to end it. 
Our Lord gives to us, not out of benevolence, fairness, or because of our deserts, but because of the greatest virtue of all, which is called love. And that should make our hearts swell big and sadness totally disappear. To perceive such sheer undeserved love in the heart of God and to believe it with our whole heart that God, the greatest of all givers, gives out the best of all virtues, love.